Genesis chapter 8. We're moving along in the Word of God together this morning. Now, you guys have heard of clickbait, right? No? I thought that was a young person, too. Wow. Okay, well, clickbait is something that you see on social media. It's catchy little headlines that are meant to grab your attention so that you click the link and follow the article. You know, something along the lines of 10 unique UFO sightings all over the world. And I tell you, when I'm on Facebook and I see that, I click immediately. They had me at 10. So if I was to ask you to make a headline article that is both catchy, winsome, but also succinctly describes the Noahic Flood, what would you say? What would be your headline? As you're thinking about that this morning, a few years ago, Bill Moyers hosted a multi-part series on PBS called Genesis, A Living Conversation. This was back in the 90s. And he invited a distinguished panel of rabbis and scholars and preachers and priests to come and contribute and to discuss the contemporary significance of the book of Genesis. And when they came to the story of the flood, his question to them was just that. If you were to make a newspaper headline for the Noahic flood, what would it be? One of the panelists quickly said, God destroys world with flood. Another panelist said something quite different. He was a pastor. God gives humanity a second chance. Now, which of those two headlines better captures God's purpose in dealing with humanity? And I hope you understand the the importance and the significance of a question like that. Because yes, the flood was about destruction. We could say that it was God decreating the world. He was hitting the reset button. He was dealing with human sin. And as we looked at before, God deals with sin today. But more importantly, God chose to save In his grace, he saved Noah, and through Noah, he gave all of humanity a second chance. You wouldn't be sitting there today, think about it, if God didn't choose to save Noah. I wouldn't be standing up here preaching today if God didn't choose to save Noah. So the book of Genesis is a book about God's grace. We've been looking at this theme unglued, and we saw that Adam and Eve, by choosing to sin, unglued God's good creation. But God holds it all back, or he brings it all back together with his grace. That's the story of life. You see, when sin comes into our world, it unglues our life. It affects us in all different spheres of life, our marriages, our relationships with our children, our work life, all facets of our life, but most importantly, our relationship with God. But God is the God of grace, and with grace, He glues our lives back together again. So, maybe you struggle with that notion. Maybe you sit there and say to yourself, well, how in the world could God save me? I mean, I've done quite a bit of things in my life. I don't think that God's really putting me in that second chance category. I want to challenge your thought process just a little bit this morning. I would say that you know too much about your sin and not enough about the God of the universe. I think that's true for most of us. I even hear Christians talking about their struggles with sin in their life and getting hyper-focused on it, and 
And they know too much about their sin and not enough about the God of the universe. So as we take a look at Genesis 8 and 9 this morning, we are going to take an intense look at God. We're going to learn more about him. And we're going to see three things about him. We're going to see that he's the God who remembers his promises. He's a God who delights in right worship. And he's a God who is committed to preserve human life. So let's begin with that first one. God, the God who remembers his promises. Now look there at Genesis 8, and I just want you to focus on that first phrase there. But God remembered Noah. What a beautiful little phrase in the scriptures. Now, from a literary standpoint, Genesis 6 through 9 forms this inverted V. It's a literary structure that we can call a chiasmus. So all of this story flows to the point of the V. All this story flows from the point of the V. The point of the V is kind of the thematic emphasis of all of the story. And Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, is the, the point of the V. God remembered Noah. Maybe I can help you to understand what that means a little bit. What does it mean that God remembers by first considering those moments, those seasons, when it feels like God has forgotten you? I hope you understand that in this world, God doesn't forget. Something doesn't slip out of the mind of God. He's all-knowing. Nothing escapes his eternal mind. That's truth. But it's also true that in our human experience, there are times when, from our perspective, it seems like God isn't there, that he hasn't shown up, that he's forgotten us. This is exactly what the psalmist talks about in Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, I'm sure you found yourself praying like this. God, where are you right now? God, please don't forget about me. God, show up. And I would imagine that this would have been a regular element of the prayer life of Noah on this ark. Now, it's not a stretch to imagine that this is what is happening in this story. Because when the Bible talks about God remembering, it says that God's showing up during a person's time of distress. Do you think that the ark was stressful? I do. I mean, let's step into Noah's shoes for a moment. I want you to place yourself on board that musty, cramped, yes, smelly ark for just a little bit, okay? So we're going to get into the timeline and and see how long Noah was on this ark, and I'll be summarizing chapter 7 and chapter 8. So the Bible tells us that Noah entered the ark when he was 600 years, 2 months, and 10 days old. He spent time on that ark for seven days before it started to rain. And then the rain came down 40 days, 40 nights. He's pitched about in this boat. And then it says that the floods covered the earth for 150 days. As the flood water starting to recede, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which is evidently the region far eastern Turkey, maybe approaching the Russian border. And we suspect that it was a higher mountain because the Bible says that it took another 73 days for Noah to start seeing other mountain peaks. Forty days later, Noah sends out a raven. And then he sends out three doves in seven-day increments. The first dove goes out, it comes back. The second dove goes out, brings back an olive branch in its mouth. The third dove doesn't return. 
Two weeks later, after that Doug doesn't return, he sees dry land. Now, you think that he would have run off of that boat and started making mud angels on the ground, don't you? But no, the Bible tells us that he waits an additional 57 days to hear a command from the Lord. Go out from the ark. So we're told that he leaves the ark when he's 601 Uh, Two months and 27 days old. Noah spent a year and 17 days on that ark. That's a long time. I I get cabin fever over a weekend. I mean, can you imagine being cramped up on this ark for one year, 17 days, and not to mention the fact that half of the time spent in that pulse-quickening state where you're in this flood. You think there were sleepless nights? How do you get away from your spouse when you argue? What do you do with your kids jabbering in your ear all the time? Of course, they were older, but, you know, that's not a problem, right? The the ark was no luxury cruise. And one of the greatest human fears is the fear of being forgotten. When I pass away, I want people to remember who I was. I remember talking to my psychology professor when I was in high school, and he was talking about a young man who would regularly uh, disrupt the classroom. He would just kind of make it all about a a goofball session, whatever you want to call it. And so one day, he finally lost his cool, and he said, what in the world are you doing? Why do you keep disrupting my class? Why can't you just sit still and calm down for a minute? And I got to tell you, as a Reformed youth pastor, I can relate to that. Well, the young man said something that struck him. He said, I just want someone to know that I exist. He wasn't just attention-seeking. He wanted to be noticed so that someone would care about him, would know that he's around. We see instances in the Bible where characters are crying out to God, take notice of me. I'm here. And when the Bible uses this special phrase, it tells us when God is remembering something that he is showing up in a tangible way, ways that can be felt, experienced, observed. For example, in Genesis chapter 30, he shows up in Rachel's world by bringing a child to her. In the book of Exodus, he remembers the people of Israel and their groaning by sending a deliverer to bring them out of captivity. When God remembers, the phrase occurs 73 times in the Bible, it is telling us that God is staying true to his promises. He remembered what he had said to Noah. He was keeping his promise. And by extension, Noah becomes a conduit of grace to us because God promises to never unglue the creation by a flood again. I want you to listen carefully to these words from Warren Wearsby. He says, we can be sure that God never forgets or forsakes his people, not only because of his promises, but also because of his character. God is love, and where there's love, there's faithfulness. He can never deny himself or his word, for he's the faithful God, and he can never change because he's immutable. Because he's perfect, God can't change for the better, and because he's holy, he can't change for the worse. We can depend on him no matter what our circumstances or no matter how we feel. I got to 
say that again. Take comfort in those words. You can depend on God no matter your circumstances, no matter how you feel. Feelings are not facts. They're feelings. God's character is fact. And he's true to it. So next time you feel locked up on the ark, remember who God is. Now let's move forward in the story. Have you ever gone away on a long trip and as you're coming back, you say to yourself, this is the first thing I'm going to do when I get home. Imagine what you would have done when you got off the ark. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I find that verse to be one of the most challenging verses in all of the Bible. I mean, the task list must have just been immense scrolling in Noah's mind. In fact, it probably was no longer a list. It became a book. I know what I would be going through. If I got off the ark, I'd be saying to myself, okay, check, get all these stinky animals off of here. Check, make sure I hug and kiss the ground repeatedly. Check, make sure that I build houses two to three hours walking distance away for Shem, Ham, Japheth so that we can get our distance now. Check, try to rebuild humanity. Check, on and on and on it would go. But what does Noah do? Verse 20. Noah built an altar. What is the word of God telling about us about the place and priority of worship in the believer's life? Now when you hear me say that word worship, you know, chemo, the worship pastor, he throws that word out there a lot, and I say it sometimes. I want you to most simply think of worship like this, maintaining a healthy, vibrant relationship with God that includes knowing him, pursuing him, and obeying what he says, so that when we say things like worship can happen anywhere, we really mean that. It can happen anywhere. I can worship God at work. I can worship God when I'm driving the car. I can worship God when my kids are acting up, if I choose to. Now, two priorities in worship that cultivates a healthy worship lifestyle is one, a commitment to personal worship. And that's where we talk about this idea of just having a 10 to 15 minute quiet time uh, on a plan where I'm growing to know God a little better through his word. And also cultivating a prayer life where I'm talking to God. That's how we relate to God. There's other forms of personal worship like memorizing scripture, etc., listening to worship music, but those are the big two. Secondly is a commitment to gathered worship. So when I talk about gathered worship, I mean the gathered church on Sunday morning, and I throw a phrase around here, I say every Sunday. It's important for the life of the believer to not make church just a half Uh, time commitment or a quarter time commitment to be regularly apart and invested in the local church so that I'm hearing the preached word so that I'm lifting up my voice with other Christians and singing reading the scriptures together praying together and fellowshipping with the common uh, with believers who share the common bond of faith in Jesus now when I talk about worship it kind of sounds like oh that's easy to make a priority Preacher's making it sound like that's just such a simple thing to do, and I want to acknowledge it isn't. It isn't easy. Have you learned that yet? 
You, you, you commit to reading a Bible reading plan and two months in, your schedule just fills up and it doesn't seem like you have time for it anymore. You say to yourself, oh man, I heard the good sermon about prayer, so I'm going to start committing to the prayer life. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to pray up to heaven. You start praying, 30 seconds later, you're thinking about squirrels. Or you say to yourself, I'm going to regularly participate in the local church. But, you know, Saturday comes and you really spend a lot of extra time working out in the yard. And then Sunday comes and you say, oh, I'm tired. And then the next week, something else happens in the next week. It's hard. It's not easy. It's hard to prioritize worship unless you do what Noah did. Put it first and say that's a non-negotiable. Because when it's not in the first position, it just seems to easily find its way falling down the list till eventually at some point it falls off the list and we become distracted. And what happens when we become distracted, the next step is then we become spiritually dull. You see, we're not spiritually static creatures. You're either growing hotter towards God or you're growing colder towards God. Without worship, the human heart has a tendency towards spiritual deterioration or what I would call spiritual entropy. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about the worship lifestyle and he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's one of the spectrum. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see that you're either moving in one direction or the other, we're either conforming or we're transforming. There's no middle state. And worship is what makes all the difference in the world. Here's how it works in life. When I am growing dull in worship, I am more likely, not less likely, to watch something at, on Netflix that I know is not good for my head or my heart. When I am dull in worship, I am more likely, not less likely, to say something harsh to my spouse or to one of my children. You listen to yourself preach right now, Rob. When I am growing dull in worship, I am more likely, not less likely, to make my whole world about me. See, this is what the Bible talks about with regard to worship, and this is why it's so important. It's all over the place in the scriptures, all over the place in the book of Genesis. It's supreme to life so that we learn that our greatest joy is God, and we will get the most delight when we're connected with him. Now look at how God responds to worship in verses 21 and 22. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, Noah's worship, I want you to get this, moved the heart of God to change his mind about sinful humanity. When we saw in Genesis chapter 6, God looked at human sin and it said that he regretted that he had made mankind. Now, here in Genesis chapter 8, 
after Noah's act of worship, God looks at sinful man who is still sinful, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from youth. But after this act of worship, commits to never strike down every living creature again. This is a picture of an important theological concept called propitiation. Now that is a big theological word, I understand that, but it's a very important theological word. Harry at the Evangelism Seminar talked about Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And he talked about the nature of death when it's described in the Bible. There's a threefold aspect of it. It's physical, it's spiritual, and it's eternal. And he said that anytime you see the word death in the Bible, you can replace that word with the word separation. So when I'm talking about separation, I'm not talking about the idea of God being you know, far away from me in terms of distance. I'm talking about the separation of an enemy from another enemy. That's what the Bible's talking about when it uses that word. Propitiation is the act whereby God's anger and wrath over human sin is appeased or satisfied through a blood sacrifice. He no longer holds ill will towards the sinner. Indeed, he moves from being at enmity with us to being for us. Thus, through the process of propitiation, we are restored in right fellowship or favor with God. Now, if you were just listening to all that and you said, I didn't hang with you at all, that's okay. But hear the New Testament application of that. In Romans 3.23, Paul tells us that Jesus took that on for us. He says, we, those who have believed upon, trusted, placed their faith in Christ, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Which means then that when Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he eternally satisfied God's anger and wrath towards his enemy. So that when I trust in Christ, place my faith in Christ, believe in Christ, I can be made right with God. So in Noah's day, God responded to Noah's sacrifice with grace in the sense that he would never wipe out the creation again with a worldwide flood. Today, when I trust Jesus, I am made right with God. Now let's move on in the text. We're going to look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. And in these verses, we see that God makes a commitment to life. In God's eyes, life is precious, and we learn that it must be handled with care. So he is the God who commits to preserve life, and we're going to see the first aspect is by blessing procreation. Look at verses 1 and then verse 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and you uh, be fruitful and multiply, increasing greatly on the earth and multiplying in it. Now, y'all, God's talking about making babies here, okay? Just so we're clear. He blesses the process of procreation. From the Christian worldview standpoint, children are a blessing, a gift from God. Today, children are treated as an inconvenience, or a life 
style choice or something of that nature. But this is not how the Bible speaks of children. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame. So two encouragements. One, if you are, here's the caveat, in a committed marriage relationship, have babies. Make babies. I'm serious. It's what the Bible's telling us. It's a great thing. It's a blessing from the Lord. There are some people that really want to have children and they cannot have children. And there's other people that can and they choose not to. I think it's sad to think that more and more people are opting out of having children. I recently read an article from the Washington Post that explained one of the big factors that led to Toys R Us closing down. In one of their risk assessments a couple of years ago, Toys R Us stated that people are just not having babies anymore. Look at the, the uh, population decline in the United States. It's been increasingly going down to the point that um, in some countries around the world, people are not making enough babies to repopulate themselves. It's a problem. Now the Post writes, it may not have been the biggest existential threat confronting Jeffrey the giraffe, the store's mascot, but it's one, of, uh, one with the broadest implications outside of the world of toys and malls. But this isn't just an economic problem, is it? It's a theological problem. A problem where we say that children are not a blessing or reward from the Lord. I think there's another thing that we can talk about. Uh, don't just have kids. The Bible says train them up. Love them. Teach them the fear of the Lord and love the Lord. Uh, don't spoil them, but discipline them. Tell them that they're a precious gift from God. Enjoy them. Play with them. Uh, make grass stains all over your clothes. Build up their character. Show them to walk with Jesus. And you will experience one of life's greatest blessings. Let's look at another aspect of God preserving life. By changing our relationship with the animals. Look at verses 2 to 4. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the seas. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So if the first verse and the seventh verse were talking about the blessing of procreation, now God's talking about the blessing of meat. Hallelujah. So the next time that you are at the Brazilian grill or you're smelling that bacon sizzle, I want you to thank God for Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. And if you're thinking about doing something crazy like becoming a vegetarian or something like that, you need to set up a personal mentorship with Jeremy Anderson, who has made Genesis 9-3 his life verse. Silliness aside, there are again two important realities in these verses. First, humans are distinct from animals and inherently hold more dignity, value, worth, essence than animals. Now you'd think that I wouldn't have to say that. I could just move on but we're getting more and more morally confused. 
I recently read another article from the Washington Post. It describes a lawsuit between PETA, people for the eating of tasty, I mean, um, (laughs) people for the ethical treatment of animals on behalf of a macaque monkey against a photographer. Naruto, the macaque who lives in the island of Sulawesi, Indonesia, became famous in 2011 when he had picked up an unattended camera and he started taking selfies. And you just got to think about that for a minute. How much mental energy does it require to take a selfie? So, he picks up this camera, he peers into this camera, and he gives this big wide tooth grin that you see. Well, PETA argued that in selling those photos, the photographer was guilty of copyright infringement and that this monkey has, of course, the same rights in court as a human being. Now, I'm glad that the three justices of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decided that animals do not have the same rights as human beings in court because, again, we're talking about a monkey And it's obvious that the monkey didn't care to go defend himself in court. And he was actually having a pretty good time while he was taking those pictures. But it is troubling to realize that a federal court of appeals would even take the case. It provides some level of legitimacy, doesn't it? From the Christian worldview standpoint, we fight these distinctions not because we don't care about animals, but because when I blur the lines between humans and animals, I blur the lines of human dignity, value, worth, and essence. And if you're wondering if God cares about animals, he does. Genesis 9-4 tells us that life should be treated with respect, regardless, irrespective. He says, you shall not eat uh, flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And I don't think that the Bible's telling you that every time you've gone out recently and had a rare steak that you've been living in perpetual sin. I think that the Bible is telling us that taking the initiative or the point of killing an animal, draining its blood, treating it properly is showing respect to that animal life and to the God who gave it life, which has broader implications than for how I would treat animals. All right, let's look at the third implication. God preserves life by delegating capital punishment to human government. Look at verses five and six. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, this is an incredibly volatile political issue. I acknowledge that. And in our own time stamp in history here on Cape Cod, it's a volatile issue in light of recent events. But I take seriously the, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit that a couple of months ago, six months ago or so, I'm charting out sermons, and for whatever reason, we'd be in this text at this time. And I also want to be sensitive to this, while at the same time, remain true to what I see the word of God saying. So Genesis 9-6 is clear. God has given government the authority to exercise the death penalty with murder. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. I want you to consider the flow of the Genesis account. We think that this is just kind of randomly appearing here on the text. Why would we have a statement like this here? Well, Cain kills Abel, and there's no human institution to take care of it. Lamech kills a man for offending him, no human institution to take care of it. By the time that we get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, we see that the earth is filled with violence. Humanity without government and the healthy application of the death penalty grows to actually disdain life. It's anarchy, like the book of Judges. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I want to argue that the death penalty is a provision from God that upholds the the dignity and value of human life when applied justly by a human government. I'm not talking about an individual seeking out vengeance. I'm talking about a society with rules in the application of law. Kent Hughes qualifies this statement for us. He says, certainly we live in a day when there are judicial abuses and the death penalty is sometimes politically, even racially motivated. Such abuses are an abomination. Woe to a system that wrongly administers the death penalty. Woe to the society who allows that to happen. Woe to judges who are culpable. God will not be mocked. But to argue against the death penalty on humane grounds is to argue against God's word. It exists precisely because of God's humane concerns. Now, here's three ways that I understand the death penalty to protect human life. The first is that it avoids personal vendettas. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, lawlessness is soon to follow. Secondly, it provides justice for victims. Thirdly, it serves as a natural deterrent for murder. When we ignore God's teaching on this subject, society descends even more into a society of violence. Now let's move on from here. Let's look at chapter uh, 9, verses 8 to 17, and we're going to see the fourth way that God preserves life. He gives a covenant sign Verse 8, the text tells us that God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign for the covenant between me and the earth. So this covenant that we're looking at is called the Noahic Covenant. There's um, several major covenants in the Bible. There's the Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, Abrahamic, Davidic, and the covenant that we experience through Jesus, the New Covenant. I want you to notice that this Noahic Covenant has three aspects of it. It's universal unilateral and unconditional. It not only affects human life, but it affects all life. That's what makes it universal. God's the initiator, the sustainer. That's what makes it unilateral. And it's unconditional because God says that it's 
everlasting, so that there's nothing that we could ever do to make God bring another cosmic worldwide flood upon the earth again. How do we know that God intends to keep his promise? Every time that God makes a covenant, he also provides a sign. In marriage, the sign of the covenant tends to be in our society a ring. In the case of the Noahic covenant, it's the rainbow. In the Peanuts cartoon strip, Lucy and Linus are staring out the window and Lucy says to Linus, it's raining cats and dogs out there. What if the entire world floods up again? Well, Linus says it won't. In Genesis 9, God promised Noah that he would never again destroy all the earth by a flood. The sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy, turning back to the window with a big smile, says, Boy, you've taken a great load off of my shoulders. To which Linus retorts, Sound theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) The Hebrew word for rainbow is actually the word bow. So we're talking about that, that weapon of war. In the ancient Near East mythologies, stars in the shape of a bow were associated with the hostility of the gods. But God transformed that idea in his word through Moses. When he gave that rainbow, it was a picture of his grace and faithfulness, a guarantee of peace. He had every right to take that that bow and, and to turn it onto humanity because of our sinfulness and the judgment that we required because of our sin. But instead, what does he do? He takes that bow and he turns it up towards heaven. God willingly takes the punishment for human sin upon himself. As we conclude, if we're considering that headline, God gives humanity a second chance, and we said that that's a really good headline that captures the mood of this story. I would submit to you a very, very good headline as well would be that God is committed to salvage operations. When the world was a wreckage, God reached down and gave grace to a man named Noah. By grace, he reached down into the world, and he declared that Noah was righteous. And because of that declaration, he saves Noah through the flood and by extension, the rest of the world. God is still committed to salvage operations. By faith, when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells us that God radically changes your heart. The light of the knowledge of God shines forth in the face of Jesus. When I come to know Jesus, I get access to God. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul assures us that it has nothing to do with us. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're the jar of clay. A jar can only receive treasure. For what purpose? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. By faith in Christ, God makes you into a treasure. His treasured possession Through Jesus, God reaches into the wreckage of a sinful world and he pulls out his treasure, his people. Listen to the words of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me in a word?